A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. Today, I am speaking with John Richardson, who is a senior consultant with ICIS. Based in Australia, original from, originally from the UK, as you might be able to tell from his accent, John is an expert in polyolefins markets, a bit of a contrarian, and a really smart guy. We're going to be talking today um, and getting an update, and you've heard John previously on the podcast. He's been on a number of times, but what we're doing today is talking about getting an update on polymers markets, the global economy, the effect of China, and the effect of low carbon investments. So stay tuned. John, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you, Victoria. All right. So you've been on previously, but maybe people need a refresher. They haven't heard you before. Give us a little bit about who you are and what your background is. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been in the chemical industry now for 26 years working for ICIS, originally as a journalist. So I moved to Singapore in 1997. To be honest, I knew nothing about chemicals then. So I sort of learned from the bottom up despite talking to people and reading books. And then from 2006, I've been a consultant that moved to Perth about 10 years ago. But my specialty is global polyolefin markets with a big focus on Asia. So it's the usual stuff. It's short-term supply, demand, pricing, margins, and trying to work out what's around the corner over the long term. Awesome. 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 All right, John. So 2023, the year that we were kind of supposed to return to normal, although I know, you know, heading into the year, people have said, eh, first half is kind of not so hot. Second half is supposed to be better. Um, what are you seeing? So based on what you thought was going to be happening in 2023 versus where we are, What's the story? Well, I don't always get things right. <laughs> None of us do. Otherwise, we'd be sitting in Monte Carlo. I did say I didn't think there'd be a zero COVID bounce or post-zero COVID bounce in China. And the reason I said that was because the real estate bubble had popped in late 2021, and that's worth some 30% of GDP. And it, it's the end of the government put option. In the, in the old days, prices always rose, and the government guaranteed that. So why on earth wouldn't you buy three condos if you got the credit? It was a, a one-way investment. And prices have fallen. They may rise again, but they've fallen, and they're very weak at the moment. Real estate said it's very weak. So that's gone as a, an investment driver. I've been saying for many years, really, since probably 2011, the demographics would catch up on China eventually. In fact, the... The births per woman fell below population replacement rate way back in 2001 and have been below that 2.1 babies per woman since then for most years. And they were 1.2 last year. So we've got household formation rate falling since 2013. We've got a shrinking working age population since 2015. And it's catching up. You know, there's not yeah. a demand for housing because young couples, a few young couples are getting married, obviously. 
and the demographics it's a bit of a, just, a, I'm going to jump in if I can. It's a bit of a whipsaw effect, right? So this single child policy, which I guess was intended to counteract just the tremendous population growth. I, I saw on something that you had written recently uh, that in 1963, it was 7.5 children per yeah. woman. I mean, that's just, frankly, as a woman, that's nuts. I'm just going to put that out there, but it's astonishing. And now we're down under, or we're close to one. Is it 1.2 births per adult child woman? Is is that how they measure it? So it's kind of a crazy whipsaw in 60 years. Exactly. And and you think that, I mean, the, the old cliche has value that China's getting old before it's rich because last year per capita incomes were $13,000 versus developed world average of 48,000, according to the INF. So, you know, the developed world can kind of cope with an, old, an older population. We've got aging populations in the West, in some parts of the West. So I think the US will be all right because it keeps renewing itself, but other parts of the West, not so much. So they can cope with it. But China's got, you know, it's still a poor country and it's got big issues with its pension and healthcare system. So, of course, savings rates are going up. And the further factor I was pointing out was it's all tied to real estate because local governments, provincial governments, are responsible for 70% of government spending in total. And how they raise money for infrastructure, which is a key way of boosting any economy, isn't it? The old multiplier yeah. effect from the yeah. deal, you know, was to issue bonds, which were very popular, but those bonds were backed by rising land prices. So land prices are falling. Further factor is something the and interest rates are rising, and interest rates are rising exactly. Uh, Something the economist pointed out, which I hadn't thought about as well, good 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 feature in the economist, which kind of reflects of what you know some of what I've been writing for quite a few years. And the other week on the cover, that in the developed provinces, most of the infrastructure investment is tapped out. You've got enough bridges and roads, high speed rail, etc. So the only infrastructure left to develop if you can raise the money is in places like Tibet, where the population is lower. So you bang for your book in terms of stimulus is less, multiplier effect is less. So you add all this together and, of course, the 8% decline in exports in April, after a few months of decline because of inflation in the West. And as I was saying, China enjoyed a fantastic year in 2020. So we're all in lockdown buying durable goods. It was inevitably going to be a cycle out of, um, you know, goods into services um, at the end of the pandemic. So you knew that was going to be a problem for Chinese exports of washing machines, refrigerators, electronics, etc. But that's been worsened by the interest rate increases, inflation. So you think it's a kind of perfect storm. So everyone said, oh, yeah, you just wait till after the Lunar New Year after the zero COVID came to an end and mush chemical prices and demand boom, but said, no, hold on, there's all these factors that have built up now. Services are recovering, of course, because people are out spending money, Labor Day holidays, you know. Although, interestingly, talking to people in Shanghai this week and they're saying young people are very cautious about spending. So they were traveling during the Labor Day holidays in May, but they weren't willing to open the wallets that much. They were careful about what they spent. So there's that, that sense of lack of confidence. Yeah, I mean, you sort of talk to people. 
So chemicals demand, I mean, get back to polyolefins. The point is that China is the biggest demand driver in the world, as we've discussed before, I think, from this podcast. Way, way, way more important than the rest of the developing world. We can see that per capita and by millions of tons. And it's, it's outpunching its population size and its wealth. And that's because of, you know, two things, really. A youthful population which drove their manufacturing efficiency became the workshop of the world up to 2009 by which time the population was aging and then to 2009 onwards it was this massive economic stimulus um which kind of brought forward demand if you like you know so driven like by the driven by real estate or driven by this whole i mean frankly the country's strategy to become yeah, self-reliant as well as an exporter was it, or or what was driving that? Would you say? Well, probably talk pet chems supply in a minute, but I think that the, the stimulus was really responsible sponsor the global financial crisis because they were panicking a bit. Oh my goodness, we all lose all these jobs. So in February two thousand nine, whoosh, this massive stimulus program, and it yeah into real estate, into manufacturing capacity. We can talk about in a minute into infrastructure. So. A massive amount of wealth creation for the wealthy, for those who have access to credit, the middle classes living in the big cities. And, and there's some very rich people in China, of course, made a lot of money getting in and out of real estate at the right time. Um, and that basically led to, I mean, look at, I mean, uh, polypropylene. Back in 1990, if you go right to 1990, the developing world is 5 billion people, right, outside China. Right. China's one point. 4 billion people. In 1990, they had about the same per capita consumption of polypropylene. By 2022, the gap was enormous. I can't remember the data from my own chart now, but the gap was huge. But basically, in millions of tons, 1.4 billion people were consuming more polypropylene than 5 billion people. 5.2 billion people, to be exact. Which, so which was that. driven by this being the manufacturer of all the cheap and cheerful products oh, yeah. for export. It's, it's not actually it's not actually people in China consuming it, it's re-exports, absolutely, Victoria. It's not a real yeah. number. But also there's a lot of local wealth local wealth as well created in that kind of real estate. Absolutely. Around right. Stuff. Absolutely. But if you did a, an equalizer, a lot of that is re-exported. So it's not really they're consuming that much per capita at home. But it's created a lot of wealth. Um so they're punching above the weight, and they consume more than the developed world, <laughs> um, which is about 1.4 billion people. You know, China's 1.4 billion. So the developed world is way rich, isn't it? Um, but again, of course, it's to do with this, you know, um, manufacturing for export. So anyway, all these things come together, and we're seeing, you know, possibly one minus one percent growth for polypropylene this year based on the i thought it might get a bit better than that i think it might go to one two three percent but people had expected six percent that's the thing people had expected you know china to slow down that's been the sort of given for for years um and they expected to slow down to six or seven percent growth in all the chemicals and polymers but what we're looking at now, I think, is some years of minus growth, but by one, two, three percent growth. So the capacity was built on the assumption of six to seven, 
right in this down cycle right. in this cycle so because china is so important for demand i mean a lot of people say oh don't worry the rest of the world is doing really well but look at india i was in india a few weeks ago and it's absolutely booming no question so but one product high density polyethylene last year india was about three million tons of high density polyethylene demand china was 17 million tons as we know, wow. the India population is just about to get bigger than China or has done already. There's a big lot of the media about that, isn't there? But in terms of chemicals, you have to ask the question, so what? Because even if India grew at 12% a year, and we're saying 6% this year for HD, it would take many years for it to catch up with China. And because China's only growing at one, well, actually in HD, it's minus 4% this year. Oh, wow. So far. Oh, wow. That, again, I think is, it might get better in the second half. I think it probably will. We'll have a look at the data. But it's minus 4% if you annualize the January-April data, which is extraordinarily low. I think there's something weird going on with HD. But still, say it's 1% or 2%. You know, even if India consistently grew at 12% every year for the next few years, how long would it take mathematically to capture up with China? And this is the challenge we face, the chemical industry. I think people have... I'd assume people didn't think about the demographics enough. They didn't think about the role of real estate and debt. And they built capacity on the assumption of, a, say, 6 or 7% consistent growth. Down, yes, because it's been a double digit since 2000 in China, yeah. average, yeah. Um, because they thought that the economy would mature. So that's that's problem we face. That's, I mean, it's been an interesting – you say that it's actually – Pretty interesting story. I mean, I've and I've been in a lot of conversations about growth drivers. And honestly, John, not a lot of people were talking about real estate and Asian real estate and its effect on polymer growth. I I can guarantee that. I mean, going back even a decade ago, I was not hearing those conversations. So I guess it's not really a surprise because I think a lot of people take the growth at face value. And they take a look at it, um, frankly, kind of similar to the stock market. Like, ooh, it keeps going up. This is awesome without necessarily understanding the fundamentals, right? So there's a big assumption that people actually understand the fundamentals, believe the fundamentals, and recognize um, the differences. And that they're willing to be contrarians to the rest of the crowd, right? So if you look at investment in crackers and polyolefin plants, some of it's to meet the goals of growth and these growth expectations. It's to meet stock market investment and, and investor sentiment. It's keeping up with the Joneses as well. Yeah, you've got to get bigger and bigger to maintain market share. And I guess with, yeah. how do we say this diplomatically in the US, you've got incredibly cheap feedstock and amazing low interest rates. So why not? You know, of course, US, the main market for US exports is not China. It's Latin America, Europe, isn't it? I think I'm not sure which order that is in. Yeah. As you know better than me, but yeah. still, China makes the pie bigger, doesn't it? I would have made the pie bigger if we hadn't been in this situation for the US. So, this, this negative growth, so negative growth in polypropylene, you're saying negative 1% this year, negative growth in HDPE, which is down 4% this year. And, What's the effect? And I know certainly let's talk polypropylene first because China's been investing heavily for years in polypropylene. 
Um, so if growth is down, demand growth is down, <laughs> capacity is up, what's going on uh, from a global supply demand perspective? Um, well, I mean, China's become a major exporter uh, since 2021. So what you have now is raffia grade. Um, and it's going through to traders at the moment. Um, and it's going all over the world. I mean, China used to export to primarily to Southeast Asia because of the ASEAN-China free trade deal, duty-free. Yeah. So it was really the two big markets being Vietnam and Indonesia. Indonesia is the biggest, actually, in terms of net imports at the moment. Um, but now it's going to Turkey, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Brazil, Guatemala, Mexico, Peru, um, everywhere, um, where the, the, the material will flow and it's obviously competitively priced, it's raffia grade. So that's one effect, and that's putting some pressure on the established exporters in Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait, um, Abu Dhabi, more importantly, South Korea, Singapore, Thailand, Taiwan, and Japan. It's putting, they're the big polypropylene exporters, so it's putting pressure on them. Um, in terms of you know, the new capacity in China, um, the government in 2014 said across petrochemicals generally, we're going to become more self-sufficient. At the time, people said, ain't, ain't going to happen because the cost per ton economics don't work. But the projects in China have never been built just for cost per ton economics. It's social, yeah. political, yeah. more recently geopolitical about supply security, adding value to the economy because of an aging population. And, you know, petrochemicals are a high value industry are perceived as such. So, We've seen this steady growth of capacity and the big new plants, a lot of PDH based PP based on imported propane, sometimes from the US, of course, and the Middle East um, and big refinery based, big crackers, less emphasis on coal because of environmental reasons. So bigger units. Um, and this is petrochemicals in general, just not polypro. Right. And it's carrying on. Right. 4.6 million tons due on stream this year. And if you look at my latest estimate of demand at minus 1%, I said it's probably a bit too bearish. I think it will get better, but let's let's assume that's right. Capacity is 124% of demand. And it first went above 100% in 2021 for the first time ever. So you've got 124%. So what... What's keeping net imports which, flowing Which implies in. like what, a 70 to 75% operating rate? Is that the, exactly. if we flip it, is that the implication? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's, that's good math. That's quick math. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, well done. It's exactly right. It's about 75% spot on. Um, and, you know, that they have to still import copolymer, right? They haven't got the technology yet to do your sort of, high melt flow stuff, you know, the clever stuff. Having to do, you know, import that. So that's that's keeping the South Koreans and Saudis interested in, in China and, you know, it's maintaining those trades. So net imports this year about 2.9 million tonnes based on the data so far, but that's down from 6 million tonnes in 2020, 6.1. So it's a big drop. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just creating big oversupply globally, obviously. Um, and um, uh, pressure, as I said, on the on, on the raffia grade, but uh, and they're going to work to upgrade that, right? I mean, I mean, 
Sell out, sell up, right? That's a strategy. Absolutely. So selling out at these lower raffia grade uh, products, but China's not going to be content to sit there with the cheap stuff. They're going to want to upgrade their products. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, there are unconfirmed reports that Chinese companies are setting all these overseas offices up, right? And um, to sell directly because they don't want to go for the traders. And obviously you don't sell higher value grades for traders, do you? You want to do it yourself because it's all customer service and you know the rest of it. So again, I was talking to people in Shanghai on Monday, and they were saying, "Yeah, they think they will happen eventually. They'll be exporting copolymer grade." Um, and don't assume they can't get the catalysts and the process technologies. I think history's proven they can do that. You know, in other products. So inevitably, they'll go into those. And the only thing is whether geopolitics will stop them from doing it. So tell me more um, about that. Another. What are you? What are the geopolitical pressures that you see going on right now? Well, whether it will extend to obviously there's a big issue in, on, 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 on semiconductors with the US and supplying technology to China. Um, I mean, Bill Gates thinks that China can actually make its own semiconductors of a high enough quality, and he should know a bit about semiconductors. Bill Gates. Yeah. So, think so he thinks yeah. that you know. The, that, that China will be okay, but there's that that gap, and, and whether that applies also to things like catalysts or polypropylene, I don't know, and um, process technology. But there's that challenge that they can't get access to the the technologies they need to upgrade their industry to be a real threat in copolymer. Um, uh, and I, I think or, what's interesting with that, though, John, is I, I've worked with some of the technology and catalyst companies, and they'd be delighted to sell the higher value catalyst that allows anyone, China, whomever, to India to make a higher grade product, their concern is that they won't buy it, right? That they're, that they're going to be unwilling to buy the imported product. Not so much un- not allowed to, but unwilling to. And so I think there's a, there's a bit of a, a gap in either understanding or intent around that. Right. So they would prefer to develop their own stuff, you think, or they're not as That's the perception. That's the perception. Okay. So whether they feel they can close the gap themselves mm. or they're not interested, Maybe. I suppose it's a question of Maybe. Who somewhere knows? in between the two conclusions. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if this is still falls into the geopolitical realm, but this is just political and not. So the UN Plastics Treaty negotiations are going on right now. What's China's involvement and stance on this? You know, when you when you talk about the polypropylene growth that they've got based on PDH, much of it is imported propane that they're utilizing. All I can think is huge logistics footprint right, which has its own sustainability issues. And I know that we've, so we've got a lot going on right now with the UN Plastics Treaty, trying to have some better solutions on, well, plastic waste, circular, I mean, uh, circularity, advanced recycling, other things. There's a number of agendas going on, depending on where you sit. What's China's agenda and role in this? Well, before the pandemic, they published a lot of regulations on plastic recycling. And about in the big cities, forcing people to separate into different types of plastic. And um, 
you know, they've cleaned up the Yangtze, so it's no longer this kind of horrible, <laughs> virtually not flowing plastic waste, as it was described. So that's that's happened in the last few years. But again, you know, what do I know? What's really happening? Well, only my network. We, we don't know what's happening at the high school. Nobody knows, do they? If they pretend to know, I think they're being a bit disingenuous. So the people I talk to say it's not a priority at the moment. Um, it may become a big priority. Um, in the, the the dealing with the economic slowdown, the dealt with the pandemic, zero COVID, eventually may build a very modern plastic recycling industry. And if they want to go for it, of course, it could go for it in a big way. So that that seems to be the again. I mean, this is just my network and what people yeah. are saying. Interesting. All right. What about the world of polyethylene? What's going on? In, we've talked a lot about polypropylene. What the heck is going on yeah. in polyethylene? Well, the good news is, I mean, in polypropylene, you can you can draw a scenario and China becomes a net exporter in the next few years. Even if copolymer, as I said, you know, that'll take a while longer, I think. But um, but in polyethylene, you know, if you play around with the data in a very bearish, pessimistic way, it's impossible to make China a net exporter. And, you know, that really the net imports will carry on for a long time because they just can't build enough steam crackers. Even if you sort of take demand down to one or two percent and up the operating rates and assume new capacity, which is very hard to justify in that circumstance, big new crackers. So. So that's good news. So China will still be importing, but HD is the weakest, as we said. The most oversupplied and explains the weak demand growth. And I think that's a lot of new capacity in HD in China again. Um, um, low is interesting because low was became very expensive versus linear low. And um, what you saw, the, the premium for low over linear low went to an all-time high. Um, up to the second half of last year, all-time high. And that was because people were making less low because they were making more EVA on the swing plants. And EVA is driven by solar paneling capsulants. What's happened since the second half of last year is the premium of low over linear low has collapsed. Now, why that's happening, I'm trying to find out. But it means it's made low more affordable. And so, in fact, low looks like growing at 3% this year so far, whereas the last three years it's been negative growth in China. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a pricing thing as well as performance, right? Because low has some unique performance. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, characteristics. It, it, processability and things like that, yeah. I've heard. Yeah, so you know better than me. But, um, yeah, so that, that seems to have... So far this year, it looks like about 3% growth. But as you know, it's a very small market relative to the other two. Well, 6 million tons in China are thereabouts. So it's not a kind of 17 million, 13 million for H, 17 million for H, about 13, 14 for linear. So even if it's 3%, it's not not big deal. Linear low, the data is a bit delayed. I've only got the January, March data for some reason. I don't know what's happened to the customs data, but last time... And check we haven't got the customs data for April. January March suggested three percent growth, but I think there might have been some overstocking because we saw a big increase in imports in Q1, as we did in polypropylene, and then they fell off in April. On this, oh, everything's going to recover after zero COVID. So I'm not convinced three percent is quite right for linear. I think as the data comes out, it might go down a bit. 
But again, people expected six or seven percent for linear low. So even at three, it's still less than people had expected. Um, at least, it's, so, I'm sure that it, compared to some of the other grades, at least it's positive. Is the um, sentiment? Oh, yeah. And I think I think that's the thing. I don't think I want China's economy is going to collapse by any stretch of the imagination. And I don't think consumption. I mean, it might go negative in some years for certain reasons. But certainly in the medium term, you know, it'll just potter along, it'll grow. But it's just less than people had expected. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, you would, I mean, so were we at the bottom of the cycle? When we look at where we are in, in the chemical cycle, the petrochemical cycle, are we at the bottom? Are we approaching the bottom? Are we, I mean, how would you characterize where we're at? Um, very good question. And the question everybody asks, <laughs> what the answer. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that by say 2025 we'll get to the bottom. But I'm not saying that's an expectation. That's a hope. So you think we're still sliding for another two years, John? I think, I think so. I think that. So let's look at the positives, right? Okay. I mean, Please. <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm hoping inflation has peaked in the West, right? I don't know what you feel in the US. Um, will the US suffer any kind of recession? If it's a recession, it's a mild one. I think you've managed to avoid the debt ceiling disaster, thank goodness. Yeah, the debt um, ceiling has been the biggest pressure recently. So hopefully we're yeah. skating past can't that. Stop, can't stop you lot from spending. <laughs> you know, it's like so consumer spending, which is great. Yeah. Although to, to your point, what we're really seeing though still is more, more spending on services than goods, yeah. right? I and mean, so airplanes yeah. are full. Mm. I assume restaurants are full. I really don't go out to eat very much, so I have no judgment there, John. Um, yeah, um, but services are busy, right? That's where people seem right. to be spending their money. Okay, okay. Although, and then, but you know, there's some weird conundrums, right? So you would say that the real estate market should be dead, um, given where interest rates are, and yet houses are selling at all price points. Maybe not to the extent that they were in 2020 and 2021, but the real estate's market is still moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, and, I think, and plane yeah, tickets Europe. are expensive. Like if you want to fly someplace, forget it. It's so stinking expensive because planes are full. Tell me about it. It's really expensive. But um, I wonder if to some extent that's, there's not as many, as many flights available. So they're sort of keeping it tight. Um, but I mean, Europe, you've, you've had this big fall in energy costs, of course, because they seem to have weaned themselves of, of, of Russian gas, which is good. Um, and um, well, we'll see what happens with the winter um, and whether the you know geopolitics affects it. But at least that, that seems to be. Although my colleague Will Beecham, our deputy editor of the ICS Chemical Business Magazine, ICS Chemical Business Magazine, sorry, um, looked at sort of loads of news sto- news stories on Monday, right, and all of them reporting negative markets in Europe. So I think there's still this effect of of inflation and the general sentiment. So so it's taken a while. I think it, I'm hoping inflation has peaked. I hope the US will carry on as it has done. 
and this will support demand, right? The rest of the developing world outside China should be okay, I think. So growth in India is great. Um, Southeast Asia is good. Um, so that's positive. But um, I still think the effect of China, given the fact that it's so important for global demand, we're going to reach a situation where capacity will simply have to shut down, I think along with hopefully better demand in the rest of the world and accepting that China will grow at one or two percent. Yeah. It it seems that in the past though, China's maybe been reluctant to shut down capacity. I mean every so okay. So let's just let, let's look at the situation even in the past 10 years. There has not been much capacity shut down, partly because these older assets, they're cheap to run. Um, right, they're paid for, you're just running them, you're generating cash, even in heck. I mean, at times it's a lot of cash, at times it's a little bit cash, but you're still generating cash. What's going to be different? What's going to prompt anyone to start shutting down assets? Starting with China, that's a very interesting point. Of course, we still don't know, but I mean, they've got these little powder polypropylene plants, they don't even make pellets attached to what we call teapot refineries, but they're owned by local governments. So why would they want to shut down? It's a good source of revenue, as you say, cash. There are fe- there's a feeling or a hope out there, nobody knows, a hope out there that the smaller plants will shut down this time. Um, I mean, there are a few plants in polypropylene, I was talking to my colleagues in China, they've been idle for about a year now, they're not operating, but they don't disappear. <laughs> So they may disappear in this down cycle. But then if you move to the other side of the world, to Europe, now, as you know, Europe's got great pipeline systems. It's got great feedstock flexibility. I mean, we talk about old crackers, but they've added furnaces over the years that improved the efficiency, energy efficiency, heat transfer, and all that stuff. They're very good at it in Europe. Very, very experienced. But the feeling is, I was in Vienna a few weeks ago talking to people, that you've got Two, two squeezers now. First of all, you've got a carbon mitigation, you know, electric furnaces reducing carbon because of the European carbon regulations. And you've got refineries potentially, well, they will be closing down eventually because of electrification and transport. So you're losing your feedstock. So the feeling is that that will cause some rationalization in Europe. I'm not saying. John, it, it feels like Europe is regulating itself out of business. I mean, I, I talk to Europeans who, who I've, I've heard some astonishing stories, even of, you know, how they're shutting down farmers because of um, carbon footprint and the impact on, you know, transportation of farm goods and other stuff. So, I mean, I think, is it going to get fixed? I mean, does Europe has a, have a future as a manufacturer or are they simply going to be a consumer? Um, very good question. We've got the the big Ineos investment, of course, at Antwerp, which would be a yeah. well. They like to be contrarians. Uh, well, it's based on low cost imported ethane, isn't it? And um, you know that that would be a super efficient asset. I think. I think it will. Um, very good question. Do they? You know, what what support do they provide for the chemical industry? And you know. With electrification of transport, that's a major challenge because, you know, a lot of European refinery capacity, as you know, electrification of transport is is galloping ahead, isn't it, literally, and that's not an exaggeration if you look at the numbers in Europe, supported again by the legislation. 
Very good question. Um, you coming back coming back to the cycle. Um, what seems strange when you think about it is that from 2026 onwards, there's more investment <laughs> in for, primarily by Aramco in crude to chemicals. So they're taking the crude out of the ground, putting it through refineries that are making 70% of their outputs going into chemical feedstock from about 30% maximum previously. I think the the drive here is, of course, the risk of cost of electrification, that crude stays in the ground for good. And it's the number one asset for the kingdom, isn't it? And also the Aramco crude to chemicals, both in the kingdom, in South, in South Korea and in China, um, is lower carbon. So talk about carbon capture storage and electric furnaces. And then similarly, you've got assets being planned by Chevron on Dow in, um, in the US and Canada and the INEOS project, which are branded as lower carbon, they're ethane crackers. So you can see the logic here that, that Europe may introduce a CBAM, which affects chemicals and polymers in a few years. Europe is the second biggest import market for HD linear low in the world and the third or fourth for polypropylene behind, of, of course, China. So you can see the logic here. They can beat that CBAM, can't they? And, yeah. and the scale Especially of these if they're projects. with these new assets that are theoretically better, lower carbon, right? In, yeah. From a holistic perspective, that the, that's the objective with it. Yeah. And they're very big and very efficient. So they've got good economies of scale. So I think this may put more pressure on older assets as we get towards the end of this down cycle. So I think a combination of hopefully better demand in the West, developing market, you know, developing world like China doing okay, and, you know, some rationalization. Yeah. And and I guess it, to a certain degree, it's the carbon pressure that it's going to put the pressure on these smaller plants in its own way, right? There's an there's a knock-on effect, right? If with these new world-scale yeah, plants big... coming in from from Saudi Arabia, from uh, in the North America with Dow and, and Chevron, et cetera, um, better able to meet lower carbon requirements, starting you know at a low cost and putting pressure on some of these older assets that may not have um, the same effectiveness and the same carbon yeah, efficiency. That's right. And it's not just the assets potentially in Europe, but also if you look at the export stats, some, some, a lot of polymers go from South and Northeast Asia to Europe. So if they're, they're from, you know, sort of less efficient carbon assets, that will sort of squeeze them a bit more. Yeah. Not huge amounts, but some, yeah. some. Um, so that sort of adds to their pressure, doesn't it? And I think you could sort of argue that some of the Northeast Asian assets are challenged. Although it's complicated. I mean, there's some yeah, very They've been good challenged assets. for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And, and we've said this before, haven't we? And nothing's happened. And, you know, it might be nothing happens in Europe. I mean, it's just, yeah, we've said this before. And, and, and why would you be the first to shut down when if you do shut down, there's an upcycle and you, you lose potentially a fortune, don't you? It's a hard decision, isn't it? 
It is not easy. I mean, I've, I've, I've made those decisions to shut down and restart assets. Um, Shutting down uh, or idling is one decision. Dismantling is a completely different decision. Um, And so maybe what we actually see is more idling and throttling of plants as opposed to demolition of plants. You think that's what's happened before, hasn't it? Yeah, um, and maybe well, because say the then you can ball. crank up the cash cow when the markets are good. Exactly, exactly. Why take that risk when you know you never know that you know things and and when the upswing happens, it could be incredible, couldn't it? We've known that in the past. You know, you suddenly things get very tight very quickly, don't they? So you're probably right that you know that, that feels like it. History could repeat itself, but. Certainly, you know, I think to, to end the down cycle, we need idling or permanent shutdowns. I think more idling and a better demand outlook in the rest of the world while living with China growing at one or two, three percent. Yeah, interesting. Then, then, All right, John. So what should we be watching for second half? What are some what are some indicators we need to be looking for um, as we kind of progress through the year that's going to say, it's improving, it's declining, it's staying the same. If we were well, reading tea leaves boring. in the teacup, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly boring. It spreads again. <laughs> so I'm a great believer in spreads. They're not margins, I know, of course. And they're, they're very crude, but they, they do go back. Our pricing data goes back to 1993. So, I mean, I obviously focus obsessively on China, but the spreads in polyethylene remain at the lowest level since 1993. Polypropylene at the second lowest level since 2000. Where are the spreads at currently, from what you guys can tell? Let me have a look. I've got my slides somewhere. Up until mid-bay, for average across polyethylene, there were $304 a tonne, average. Um, um, and the long-term average is about 550 um in polypropylene and, and when we're talking spread because some people may not understand what you're looking at when you're talking about right. that john what's yeah. the spread you're looking at yeah sorry um it's very crude you just look at the price of polyethylene and the differential from the cost of naphtha that's all it is it says nothing like a margin but the thing is our margin products only go out to 214 which is okay but i prefer to go back a bit further to get a more of a historic mm-hmm. feel for it so spread versus naphtha. Yes. And and again, of course, that's not the only feedstock. So we can look at propane for uh, propane spreads over PP are similarly, at, you know, close to record lows this year. Last year was the record low. Um, so polypropylene is sort of slightly better than polyethylene. Um, so that, that, that in that key China market, and also, I look at Southeast Asia spreads because they're threatened. They're, 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 they're very much shaped by what happens in China. So if you look at the Southeast Asia spreads, they're similarly very low because they're so responsive to China prices. If that starts to recover, get back to that 550 level, say, for poly, polyethylene, then we're on the road to recovery. I think that has to happen, I think, really, because that means that the market's tightened in China in that key market sufficiently to bring spreads back so i just try i check them every week um keep a sort of tally and then see what's happening yeah well all right well john this has been delightful 
again, always insightful, uh, talking about what's going on in the market, what you're seeing and, and what the effect of it is. So thank you for sharing with us today. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you the absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening to the chemical show. Keep listening, watching, sharing, and following, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.